Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Last time we worked our way down as far as verse 22 together. Again, our study in Ecclesiastes is basically giving to us, as we've talked about Solomon's uh, rehearsal or his account, if you would, as he has surveyed and explored and indulged everything that he could possibly imagine under the sun here on this earth, and his recognition that apart from God, that everything under the sun that is on this earth, on the horizontal, in many ways is just meaningless, it's frustrating, it's many a times very disappointing, it leads to a lot of disillusionment, and uh, as Solomon's going through these things, you can tell that to some degree in some of his language, he's starting to become a little bit jaded. He's starting to become a little bit cynical. And in some of our passages this evening, as we go through some of these verses, you can almost sense that tone of his own frustration as he evaluates life here on just the human level under the sun. Look with me in verse 23 as he picks up where we left off last time. He says, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. In other words, I will seek to increase in my understanding. I will seek to be wise, wiser than others. But it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the reason of things to know wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. So Solomon here expressing in these verses how he thought perhaps life might be easier if somehow he had a increased understanding of why things happened. He refers to here in our verse, in verse 25, that he applied his heart to know and to understand. He says there, the reason of things. And isn't that something so often that we're longing for, so many times we're searching after, we want to understand the reason why things happen the way they do, or the reason why this is going on in my life right now, or the reason why that particular thing happened to me. And we spend much of our life, it seems, kind of in this exploratory process, always asking questions, searching for answers. And Solomon thought perhaps that's the key. Maybe life would be easier if I just had a greater wisdom, a greater ability to understand everything about life and why all things happen the way they do on this earth, why do people behave the way they do? Why do things unfold the way that they unfold? And he thought, maybe if I just understand the reasoning, and he realized as he sought to pursue that, that that too eluded his grasp. He says, I sought to be wise, but I said, it's far from me. In other words, I, I can't attain it. He says in verse 24, to understand that which is far off and exceedingly deep. In other words, maybe the, if I could just grasp the deeper things, the things that God knows, then, then maybe I would be better off. But he says, who can find it out? Again, Romans chapter 11 tells us that the ways of God are unsearchable. In other words, there are certain things about the way that God works, and Solomon will talk about this further later on, whether it's what God allows or even what God is doing that so often is so far beyond our human understanding that we will only lead ourselves down a path of continuous frustration and really almost more self-torture if we're always trying to be able to grab hold of and understand the reason behind everything that unfolds on this earth. I think one of the things that is going to be so wonderful about heaven is that when we get on the other side of the veil everything will finally make sense. All the unanswered questions will be answered. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, we'll see in our study on Sunday mornings there, that one of the things they are proclaiming, all the saints and the angels around the throne of God is righteous and true are all of your ways. In other words, all the things that we did not understand on the earth, why did that happen? And how possibly could there have been a reason for that? And, and all the things that we can't wrap our minds around in our finite thinking now, that when we get there, somehow those things will all be answered in an adequate way. 
when we're on the other side of the veil and we have a glorified body and we're in the presence of the Lord, literally, that we will be saying, Lord, I see it now. It all makes sense. And right and true was everything that you allowed or you did or that unfolded. And again, even in the midst of things that we can't grasp now, whether it's the explanation of heaven or I can't help but to wonder, maybe it's just being in God's presence. None of the questions will matter anymore. Because when we're there, we won't struggle with the same things we're struggling with here. We won't have these earthly bodies and the sickness and the struggles and the challenges and the suffering. And when we're in the presence of the Lord, it may just be that the answer to the question is just Jesus. And that when we're in the presence of the Lord, that maybe some of the reasons that we longed to have to know answers to, which often elude us and escape us, even the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of madness of why people do horrible things uh, Solomon realized, I can't find out all those reasons here. It's almost meaningless in some ways that part of life, we might say, Solomon discovered was living with unanswered questions. And boy, I tell you, what a transitional shift your life can take when you can finally, in humble faith, come to the place where you can accept that part of life on this earth will be living with unanswered questions with certain things that you'll never get the answer to. You may never understand the reason for, but you just trust and continue to walk forward, relying upon the Lord as the ultimate answer to help you get through the earthly journey. Verse 26, Solomon goes on to say, and I find more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. The idea is she's able to tie up or to shackle the idea there is he who pleases god shall escape from her but the sinner shall be trapped by her now solomon if anyone understood from firsthand experience the challenges the mistakes the traps that the female species can cause to the male species because solomon himself remember had a great weakness in this area Remember, Solomon is the one who the Bible tells us ultimately ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. So Solomon himself certainly had a great weakness in this area. And Solomon here could speak with to a degree of firsthand knowledge saying that the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. In other words, Solomon learned from firsthand experience the danger of becoming entrapped in certain ways, by a woman from time to time. And no doubt his own heart was caught up in that. The Bible tells us that in the latter days that, that those many foreign wives, many of them Solomon married just for you know, arrangements on political senses where a king would marry off their daughter to another king. And some of that, understand, was just political arrangements because if I married my daughter off to you uh, and then my daughter was there and your daughter was in my kingdom, well, then there was less chance that we're going to attack one another. And so some of it was political arrangements. But nonetheless, Solomon realized firsthand the danger of being trapped by women, the Bible tells us that many of those foreign wives that he ended up marrying, that they ultimately turned his heart away from the Lord. And they began to lead his own heart astray. And, and that's certain women who can have an unhealthy agenda. We saw in the book of Proverbs much about the immoral woman who lures in the foolish young man like an ox to the slaughter, kind of you know bringing him in. Solomon had certainly failed in that area and realized that there are unhealthy agendas at times within a woman's heart that can trap a man and can ensnare a man and cause him to, in a sense, almost be shackled where his life is literally in chains like a prisoner. A man can become snared and tripped up, and this is what he's describing here. This woman who's more bitter than death, who her heart, through the way that she operates, becomes like a snare and a net to draw him in. And basically, Solomon at times realized that he'd become like a prisoner, that he actually found himself, in a sense, imprisoned, unable to escape the connection to this particular woman who basically had ensnared him and trapped him, and now he found himself trapped. And look, notice that he references there in verse 26 that this is not only a reality, but he also speaks to the answer and the antidote of how to escape this and to avoid it, as well as, if not, being foolish and falling prey to it. So 
Again, this reality exists that a woman can indeed snare a man, and I've seen it, you've perhaps observed it, where a woman can literally, in a sense, bring a man into bondage, where basically he becomes an incarcerated prisoner and attached in a way where he should not be attached. But look what he says at the end of verse 26. He who pleases God shall escape from her. So notice, the way of escape Solomon learned was that if someone as a man seeks to please God as their top priority, that if the top priority of a man is to please God rather than to please his own fleshly desires or to please the woman who has entrapped him, who now in a sense he's become enslaved to and literally she has mastery over his life, literally like a slave, that's what he's describing in our verses here. That if a man comes to a place where he says, my greatest desire is not to please my own fleshly desires, and my greatest desire and top priority now is no longer to please you as the one having mastery over my life, but I will now please God. God is my ruler. If I am going to be obligated to obey and to be led by anyone, I want to please God. And he says that one who's willing to please God is the one who will be able to escape her. In other words, that's the best way that a man, if he wants to please God, can avoid initially from being entrapped by a woman in an unhealthy way. And it also is the way if a man has found himself in the description of verse 26, where he's now become ensnared and in a sense a prisoner to a relationship with a woman, the one way he can escape out of that relationship is when he comes to the place where he decides, I'm pleasing God. And from here forward, I'm going to please God, and that's the only way I'm going to escape this unhealthy relationship. And look, folks, sometimes in romantic relationships, people get themselves into a situation, and I would venture to say I've seen it work both ways, but one of the ways that I tell you you can get out of a relationship that is not healthy that you should not be in is you have to come to a place where you choose to want to please God more than that person. Because if you keep giving in to pleasing that other person, Instead of pleasing God, you're going to stay stuck, imprisoned in that relationship. And that is not a healthy thing if it's not a part of the will of the Lord for your life. You've got to be able to come to terms. He says, that's how to escape. But he says, it's the sinner. And what's a sinner? Someone who rebels against God, someone who rebels against God's will. The sinner shall be trapped by her. So the way to escape a wrong relationship romantically to seek to please God. He says the one who wants to rebel against God's will, and if you want to give in to your own desires and you don't want God to rule over you, then he says, consider yourself trapped. You're going to stay trapped in that relationship that you should not remain in. Verse 27, he says, here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. Again, he's searching for wisdom. He's looking for answers. He says, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, again, it shows you Solomon's getting a little bit cynical and jaded here. He's looking for a wise man, someone with answers, someone who can advise him. And he says, man, on a rare occasion, I might be able to find one man. <laughs> He says in a thousand, and then you can tell he's really become jaded in his attitude towards women. It's interesting. He's using the term a thousand, had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He said, I can't find one wise woman. Now that shows you that Solomon had really had a bad view of women. Now, can I just make a, a, a quick point off of that? His attitude, no, I can only find one wise man in a thousand and among a thousand women, I can't find one wise woman. Now, what that shows me is that Solomon had a very low view of women, which is a tragedy because it also illustrates to us this reality that pretty much at Solomon's disposal, let's be candid, Solomon pretty much had free access to sexual pleasure whenever he wanted it. He was a king, and he had a thousand different women to pick and select and choose whenever he preferred. But notice, all the free sex that was given to him did not increase his respect in view of a woman. It depreciated his view of women. And let me just say this very candidly. If you're a young lady, let me say this very candidly. If you're a parent or you're anyone who has access to a young lady, giving sex to a man is not going to increase his appreciation of you. It is not going to raise his view towards you. 
it is going to depreciate his view and it's going to cause him to devalue you and to disrespect you all the more. Solomon had a thousand women at his disposal and all the sex that he could enjoy and he had a very, very low view of women. And I think there's a tremendous connection to what's going on there. Solomon, again, very jaded, very cynical at this point in his life. He's making these kind of comments here. Look what he says, verse 29. He says, truly this only I have found that God made man upright. Now, he is wise in the sense that he says the problem's not with God. Solomon realized that. He says, truly this I have discovered, a conclusion, that God made man upright, but they, that is mankind, have sought out many schemes. So notice, Solomon realized the problem with humanity is not God's fault, he said. He says, nothing wrong with the way God made humanity. God created man, and it's particularly the first man, Adam, completely upright. There were no flaws in Adam. There was nothing crooked within Adam. God made man perfectly and for each one of us. God creates us in a way that is right and correct. The problem is, he says there, is that humanity seeks out many schemes. The problem is, is that we're crooked as individuals and just like Adam as one of his descendants is that we tend Though we start out right, we tend to start to scheme and try and get things to go our way. And as we scheme and do those kind of things as human beings, we distort our way and begin to pervert our condition. And again, Solomon just came to that conclusion. If anybody's to blame, it's not the God. It's not God that's to blame. The problem to blame is ourselves to realize that the problem is with humanity, that we are a bunch of, of just like Jacob, we're a bunch of schemers. And we're always scheming at this, and we're scheming at that, and we're, we're always manipulating things, trying to scheme and to get our way in situations. And, and in a sense, we're always trying to take advantage and, and work an angle on everything. And Solomon realized that's the problem with us, is that we're a bunch of schemers, and that's what gets us into much of the problems in our lives on this earth. Chapter 80 says, who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing. A man's wisdom, Solomon says, makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face, that is the harshness of his countenance, is then changed, the ideas, by having wisdom. So Solomon endeavors here to, again, verse 1, show the value of living wisely and being able to interpret, he says, what's going on to interpret the difference between what's right and what's wrong. And he describes here how wisdom can bring us into favor in the sight of others. He says a wise man's wisdom or a man's wisdom will make his face shine. And the picture there of the shining face is, is one who stands out among others who are foolish. So you have this population of people who are foolish, and then you have this wise man, and he says his wisdom makes his face shine. In other words, among his contemporaries, he stands out. And I think, honestly, especially in this generation, if you live in a wise way, your face is going to shine. You're going to be the glowing person in your office. You're going to shine and you're going to stand out because you live with a degree of wisdom that God gives to you from his word and as you serve him where you are going to stand out tremendously. It's going to be like God's glow is radiating off of your life just because of the way you live your life in a wise manner, as well as the fact that wisdom does have this ability, he describes there, to make the sternness, that is the, the kind of natural tendency we all have to be a little bit more harsh as human beings. It's amazing how when wisdom is at work in our lives, it also has this tendency to kind of change our nature and make us a little bit more kind as individuals to make us a little bit more understanding and gentle in spirit, and we're not quite as stern and harsh as other people around us because wisdom helps us to have a little better understanding of humanity and the way that we are and the flawed, broken people that we are. In fact, if you just glance back up our last verses from last week in chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, I mean, this was so classic where he said there, chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, do not take to heart everything that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. And then he goes on to say, here's why you shouldn't be so harsh when you hear someone saying something that 
is hurtful about you or offends you and you take it to heart and you're oversensitive and you, you know, get all offended. He says, here's why you should not take that to heart so much because he says, let's be honest, verse 22, many times also you, your own heart has known that you have cursed others. So he basically says, look, just because somebody had some negative things to say to you or negative things to say about you or you found out that they were talking about you and you're all upset and you're hypersensitive and you're all offended by that. And he says, look, why don't you step back and take about three minutes to think about how many times have you done that behind someone's back? How many times have you in a weak moment spoken negatively or hurtfully or in a gossipy manner about someone else? And again, when we recognize that, that helps us to have a little bit less of a stern attitude and take it so sensitively and get so upset and so angry. I can't believe what they said about me. I can't. And it's, and it's almost as if there's a gentleness to realize, you know, not a surprise. It's what we all do to one another. We all backbite. We're all backstabbers. We all have weak moments and in weak moments say things about people that we shouldn't probably say about them in criticism or judgmental spirit or we say things to one another in weak moments that are hurtful. And again, that, that wisdom helps us to kind of have a little less of a stern and harsh attitude and a little more gentleness in our disposition. Verse 2, he goes on to say, chapter 8, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of of your oath to God. So in our endeavor to honor God, notice he says, for the sake of your oath to God or your commitment to God, he says, here's one of the ways you can honor your commitment to God is to keep the king's commandment. In other words, to respect supreme authority, which is God's, by honoring and showing respect on the earth to civil or governmental authority, which is something that God has instituted. Right? Romans chapter 13 tells us that. Romans 13 clearly tells us that God has established civil authority, earthly authority to help keep society orderly and safe. And that they function as God's ministers with a degree of authority and even being weaponized to, in a sense, punish evil doing to basically subdue the sinfulness of humanity to keep things orderly. And so therefore, if we resist the authority on a human level, in a sense, we are resisting something that God's established. Because God knowing humanity cannot govern ourselves and that we would self-destruct, God instituted civil government. God instituted things like a police department and those who keep things safe on the earth and keep them orderly because mankind is incredibly evil. And if something was not keeping us orderly and under control as God's authority was operating through it, things would be way worse. So he tells us here, even as the New Testament does in Romans 13, one of the ways that we can keep our oath to God is to keep the king's commandment for the sake of our oath to God. In other words, respect the civil authority, that that should be our proper response. We may not always agree with them, but we are to respect the position and the authority that we hold. And there are going to be many times when we may not agree with them. The important part is that we keep our attitude in check just because we don't agree with them and become rebellious and disrespectful in nature. God tells us not to do that. We should be respectful citizens and certainly lead the way in that because we realize different than maybe people in the world do. I may not agree with their policies or their laws or their ideas or what they're doing, but I do understand God has instituted them to function with a purpose in our society, and I don't want to make their job way more difficult. I at least want to be one person to show a little bit of respect to them, lest I make them more angry and they do worse things to us all. <laughs> and so God tells us as a part of our way of honoring him that we should properly show respect to those in those positions. And look, even if we are having challenges, maybe we are struggling and we wonder, is there a time for civil disobedience? And yes, there is. The Word of God speaks that there are times, and I believe there are rare occasions, when you have clear scriptural reference in regards to the reason that you would rebel civilly. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men, but that was because they were expressly being forbidden to not preach the message of the gospel of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, 
That's something, there's a higher law. Jesus told us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So if the government ever says, or a police officer ever says, it is against the law, you cannot preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then civil authority has a proper expression because there is a higher law and a higher authority, and there is a time where we would say we must obey God rather than men. However, we have to be careful that we're making sure we have chapter verse reference and that we have clear grounds when we want to be rebellious against what the civil authority is telling us to do, or any authority for that matter. Authority is something to be respected, not always have an attitude of challenging it because maybe we just like to push against the system. And some of us have that bent in our personality, if you'd be willing to admit that. And so look, he says here, even if that may be something you might be prone to do, look, it's almost as if Solomon says here, look, don't be hasty to go from his presence. In other words, don't be hasty in that kind of stuff. If you're going to consider rebelling or challenging authority, then don't be hasty in doing such. Take your time. Be patient. Make sure you are truly accurate and you have a just basis before the higher authority, the ultimate king, which is God. And look what he says, verse 3, and do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he, that's the king, does whatever pleases him. Now understand, in that day too, kings had absolute 100% supreme authority. They were monarchs. The king did whatever the king wanted, and there was no questioning the king. And, and Solomon understood that was a generation in the way they operated in the culture of Mideastern kings. And he says here, do not take your stand for an evil Thing. And I think, boy, that, that, there's a great reminder there in that is, is that we don't ever want to find ourselves trying to take a stand on an issue that is a bad idea or, in a sense, an evil thing where it's just, it's our idea, but necessarily it's, it's not something that's worth rebelling against authority about. And so he says here, look, be careful. Sometimes we want to stick our flag in a stand and we want to take a stand against something. He says, look, just make sure if you're taking your stand, it's not for an evil thing. It's not for something maybe that is in a way just wrong in the ultimate outcome of it. You better make sure there's a good just basis if you're going to take your stand against the authority that exists. Verse 4, he says, and where the word of a king is, there is power. Again, a, a word of a king was law. That's how it was in that day. Where the word of a king is, there is power, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So when a king would make a final decision, no one could reverse it. No one could change that. And, and Solomon's going to say here, and it rarely works out well if you try and resist the authority. He says, who is going to have much success saying to the king in that day, what do you think you're doing? And the king would say, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Off with your head. And see, many a times we, we, we are so quick to want to, on occasion, rebel against authority. If it's not civil government, maybe it's our employer. Look, we need to really slow down when we find ourselves prone to want to rebel against, challenge, question, buck against authority. That rebellious attitude is very displeasing to the Lord. And it's something that in a generation we live in, because we see such craziness going on, the quandary is this, and this is going to be a quandary for the church, I'm telling you, is because we live in a generation where everything is becoming so crazy, Christians are almost adopting this mindset that we should just be challenging and fighting against everything. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't end up, in a sense, adopting this attitude where we're just going to challenge this and challenge that, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves representing the Lord in a way that's very unhealthy. Uh, you read the New Testament, you really don't see predominantly the early church or the New Testament epistles teaching rebel, 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 rebel. You really don't see that. You see living for Christ, dealing with unjust suffering, not retaliating, praying for people, exercising the ministry of the Spirit, not exercising the human spirit. That's where we've got to be careful. We need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and be careful we keep our human spirit in check. He says, verse 5, he who keeps his command, that is the king's, will experience nothing harmful. Again, if we seek to be peaceful, 
we won't bring punishment upon ourselves from the king. If we seek to be cooperative to the best of our ability, then oftentimes we won't bring more consequences and bigger problems. Many times we'll be more left alone if we do what's wise. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Notice there are times that things should be done in times or certain occasions when they shouldn't, because for every matter, there is a time and a judgment, though the misery of a man increases greatly. So again, even if we are going to challenge authority or we want to address something or talk to something, he says there's, there's a time and a way to go about that. Do it at the right time. Again, maybe you need to speak to your employer about something. You want to ask something or question something. Go about it the right way. Maybe there's a right time to talk to them. And maybe it's not when they're super stressed out. Maybe the right time is to say, you know, let me look for the right occasion in a right spirit and a right attitude so that this doesn't come off wrong. And again, just using that proper judgment, respecting their role. And he says, look, every matter, there's a time and a judgment. Use good judgment. There's right times to do things and there's a wrong time to do things. There's judgment to be used and how we go about matters makes a big difference. Verse seven, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell when it will occur? Again, Solomon realized we often don't know what's going to happen, what's going to unfold. And I tell you, by way of what he's discussing here, in some ways, I think one of the wisest approaches is time and judgment causes us to say, you know what, I don't even know what's going to unfold. So maybe I'm just going to push the pause button on this altogether, and I'm not even going to engage in the situation because we don't know what's going to unfold in the future and we can't control everything, sometimes it's wise to just completely wait altogether before we even intervene and act in a situation. Because sometimes when we just wait and we don't engage, what happens is the thing just works itself out without our involvement. And then I'm not the bad guy. <laughs> then you're not the, the person who anybody's upset about. You just step back and you say, you know what, I'm just going to pray Push the pause button on that. I don't know what's going to unfold and incur. I don't know what the future holds. So I'm just going to see what happens. And sometimes you just step back and just let the thing resolve itself. And God has wonderful ways of doing that. And many times it protects us from, in a sense, tarnishing our witness or you know, just getting into unnecessary complications. Verse 8, he says, And no one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. No one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. So again, as he speaks of the supreme power of the king and the authority that the king could pretty much do whatever he pleases, the one thing Solomon brings back to reality here is the king does not have supreme power, and one of the clearest illustrations of that is the reality of death. Because he says death itself is something that nobody can overrule. No one has power to control the day of their death. That is something that no one has control over the appointment that is scheduled by God, who's the ultimate king, the supreme ruler. He says there, no one has power over their spirit to retain it. Again, the Bible speaks of death as the spirit departing from the physical body. That's how the Bible defines death. When the spirit departs from the physical body, that is death. There is a spiritual part of us that is eternal. It's the real you. These physical bodies are not the real you. They are an instrument God gives to us for a season to express ourselves so that our spirit can experience life and articulate things and embrace and experience things. But there comes a time when the physical frame wears out and when that physical frame wears out, the spirit is released from the body. And look, other than Jesus, who was God, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, as human beings, he says, no human being has the power to retain the spirit. Nobody has authority over that. God does. God determines that ultimately. No man has supreme power on earth. Death conquers all, and it reminds us, death does, it reminds us that we are never going to be in total control. That is the one lesson that death teaches every human being. Because people may have a lot of power, and some people have way more power than others. 
But look, ultimately, because God is a supreme king, God utilizes this one thing of death to remind everyone, even the most wicked of rebels who think that they can elude God and escape God. And he says, even the most wicked attempts, you can't escape this. You're not in control of the day of your departure. God is. And I tell you, once we become aware of that reality of God's supreme authority over our life, keeping us, our heart beating, our last breath, once you're ready in a sense and you understand the reality of death, then you really know how to live. Because then you understand the best way to live is just to live in submission to God as king, as the supreme authority. And I tell you this, when a human being can come to a place where they're living in submission to the authority of God over their life, and your sole desire is, you know what? I submit to the Lord. He's the king over my life. I bow the knee to him. I don't bow the knee to her or to you or to this person. I bow the knee to the Lord. And ultimately, the Lord is the supreme authority. And when we can begin to live that way, I tell you folks, one of the things that does is it brings a tremendous peace in your life where in some strange way, you don't need to fight with people as much. You don't need to get into the ring and wrestle of things because you realize you're not in real control. God's in control. You remember what Jesus said to Pilate about that very issue? Remember Pilate, who was what? A supreme, powerful ruler, right? With incredible authority, who abused authority tremendously in the Roman government. We think our civil government abuses their authority. Not like the Roman Empire. They abuse their authority. And remember he said to Jesus, don't you realize I have the power to end your life? And Jesus looked at him and said, you have no power <laughs> over my life. That power comes from above, from the Father, from the true throne. He's the one that has supreme power. And he didn't even need to, in a sense, debate with him. He just rested in that reality. God's in supreme control. And boy, how wonderful is it brings us all to that level ground, realizing no one has power in the day of death. God controls that. So ultimately, God's in control of all, really. And it helps to live with just that awareness as we function. Verse 9, he says, all this I have seen and applied to my heart, to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another, sadly, he says, to his own hurt. So Solomon recognized, and he himself was a king, and no doubt perhaps at times erred and made his own mistakes as a king, as a monarch. And Solomon consider, considered this reality with great you know, disappointment, he recalled how really, even on this earth, how people at times take advantage of and harm other people, and one of the most grievous ways that happens is when the area of a person having a role of leadership or rulership and abusing their authority in an unhealthy way, he says there, verse 9, there's a time when one man rules over another to his own hurt, abusing their own authority. Unlike God, who properly executes his authority in righteous and good ways, sadly, part of earthly existence is people don't always manage authority well. Parents, at times, abuse their own authority with their children. Husbands, at times, abuse and misuse their own authority with their wives. Civil government rulers, at times, abuse and misuse their authority to the hurt and detriment of other people's lives. Pastors and spiritual leaders, at times, rule over the Lord's people, at times, in unhealthy and inappropriate ways and abuse their authority in a way where it's not proper. And here, Solomon just makes this honest observation. There is a time, he says, when one man will rule over another to his own hurt. He says, verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness, the idea is from the house of God, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done and this also is vanity. So Solomon recalls how vain, notice here verse 10, how vain and worthless it is, he says, when a person lives wickedly in their conduct, he says there, I saw the wicked. So this is someone who's living wickedly in their conduct. But notice, 
he says, the vain thing that they do is they had come and gone from the place of what? Holiness. So they were living wickedly in their conduct. Their actions were sinful. Their behaviors were wrong. And though they're living wickedly, they tried to cover up their sinful actions or appease their own conscience by religious conduct. They went to and from the house of God, to and from the house of holiness. And Solomon said, that's completely vain. It's meaningless. That's vanity. To basically try and cover up living in sinful rebellion to God in some way or to appease our own conscience by an hypocrisy going to and from the house of God, but yet living in a completely wicked way. Solomon, boy, that is a great vanity, he says. Why? Because God sees the hypocrisy in that. And it's not as if somehow God is going to say, okay, well, I'm going to give you a pass because you do keep coming to and from the house of holiness. So, I mean, you can keep living in that sin and rebelling, and you can keep doing what's completely wrong as long as you keep coming and visiting me at the house of holiness. God says that that's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's just hypocrisy in many ways. Again, God wants us to be sincere and genuine. So, again, that religious routine doesn't offset sinful living. He says, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So Solomon makes an interesting observation there in verse 11. Notice, because the sentence, that is the punishment, the consequence against an evil work, against sinful behavior, is not executed speedily. In other words, because the punishment doesn't come quickly, because the suffering, the consequence for the sin doesn't happen fast, therefore, he says, the mistake is the heart of the sons of men sometimes is fully set. The idea is more emboldened to keep doing evil. So he describes this major error in thought that happens when people are deceived by living in sin and the punishment doesn't come quickly. And then this deception begins to happen in the mind of the person living or behaving in a sinful way because there's a delay in punishment for their evil behavior. They become wrongly emboldened to think, oh, I guess this is acceptable then. Nothing really bad has happened yet. And there becomes this very deceptive mindset to think that behavior that is wrong and sinful, as he describes here, that that behavior is somehow acceptable or justified or worse, that it's actually approved by God. As if God's saying, well, yeah, I'm going to give you an exception. And as if somehow we're interpreting that because there's been a gap of time between the sowing of the seed and the reaping of the harvest and the punishment hasn't come yet, that I should be emboldened to just keep living in a wrong way and keep behaving improperly. Look, there's always a gap of time between sowing and reaping. That's true in doing good things. So don't grow weary in well-doing for in proper season, you'll reap a harvest, what, if you don't give up? You don't sow a seed today and reap a harvest tomorrow. So that dynamic exists in a good way. You sow good seeds and you're thinking, man, where's the fruit, where's the fruit? Well, you just sowed the seed yesterday. Hang in there, bro. <laughs> Hang in there. <laughs> There's always a gap of time between sowing and reaping. But see, the same thing happens very deceptively with sin. It is the punishment at times doesn't happen immediately as soon as the wrong behavior has been conducted. And so then this wrong idea begins to develop because the sentence of punishment against an evil work doesn't get executed speedily and the punishment and consequence and the bad fruit doesn't come. The heart of the wrongdoer begins to think hey, I guess it's okay to do this evil thing. Doesn't seem like anything is going wrong. Doesn't seem like anything really bad has happened yet. And that is just a complete lie from the devil. God is not overlooking and dismissing the sin. God is not weak in dealing with the sin. God is certainly not accepting of it. And God is certainly not approving of it. What God's doing is being patient. And he's being merciful. And be very, very careful because it is a great deception many times when there's that delay in the consequence to be emboldened and just think, oh, I guess I can get away with that next time and the next time and the next time. And all we're doing is we're compounding the painful sentence when it ultimately comes around. 
So be very careful of that. Look, this is one of the reasons why I think from a civil government perspective, why we are doing a very foolish thing with delayed punishment for criminal offenders that's very unhealthy and very dangerous. And when we delay properly, justly punishing criminal offenders, all we are doing is emboldening them to go right back out on the street and just do more evil. Because what they interpret as, well, I didn't get punished for the crime, so I guess it's okay to keep committing crime. And this is a great, great error that we make as human beings. We misinterpret God's patience and God's long-suffering as if God's allowing and approving something. And he says, boy, that's a very dangerous path to go down. It's a very dangerous path to send people down by not properly punishing them. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. So Solomon, again, just describing here, he says, you know, though I don't understand why things work the way they do, it seems like that somebody who's, you know, doing evil, that they can get away with it a hundred times again and again, and it doesn't seem like the consequence is coming. He says, the one thing I do realize is I'm wise enough to know, he says, that at the end of the day, it's still going to work out better to serve God. It's still going to end up being a much better life, and things are going to go much more well in life for those who fear God and, and, and are serving him out of respect and reverence. Verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity, an emptiness, he says, which occurs on the earth. There are just men whom it happens according to the work of the wicked, so that as the righteous suffer like the wicked unnecessarily. And again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. And I said, this also is vanity or emptiness, frustration upon frustration. So again, he's describing this confusing reality that we see happen on the earth at times where sometimes the wicked prosper, right? <laughs> and then the righteous suffer. And we can't reconcile in our mind, whoa, that's not fair. How come the wicked seem like they're succeeding and prospering? And here's this person doing what's righteous and they're suffering. And we're trying to figure out the meaning behind that. And we're trying to grab hold of why it works that way. And it's almost as if Solomon is conveying here this empty pursuit. He says, we cannot expect to figure everything out that happens on this fallen earth. And Solomon doesn't even try and give an explanation to why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? He says, I don't even have the answer to that. He says, all I know is that God will sort out all the injustices in the end. And I think that's the perspective that Solomon keeps trying to bring us back to, that if you just look on the horizontal, you're going to always be frustrated and you're going to constantly be confused because you will see righteous people suffering unfairly and you will see wicked people getting away with and prospering and succeeding. And that will throw you into a tailspin if you're always trying to put the pieces together and connect the dots. The better thing to do is to realize that ultimately, in due time, God will punish the evildoer and God will reward the righteous. God's word promises us that. And we have to have that view of beyond the sun looking to the eternal dimension to help us navigate the confusion of what we see often on this earth. So I commended enjoyment, he says, verse 15, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. So Solomon advises, in light of all the confusion, in light of all the unfairness and the frustration of that on earth, that one of the best antidotes is he says, you know what, just live a simple, quiet, basic life. Don't overthink it. Don't overget engaged in it. Don't overthink somehow you're going to just, you know, fix all the world's problems. He says, look, he, here's my rec recommendation. He says that men would do well when this is going on. He says, he says, my commendation is enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun to do than to eat and drink and be merry. That will remain with him. In other words, he says, that's something that's always within your grasp. You can sit down and have a nice quiet meal. <laughs> You can just be appreciative that there's food on your table because there are people who don't even have that. 
And you can just enjoy the simple pleasures of everyday existence instead of worrying about solving world affairs, which the majority of us are never going to have any influence on anyway, <laughs> unless we pray. And we can get ourselves so riled up and frustrated and consumed and monopolized and become an addict to, to news and we can be addicted to fear and all and the what ifs. And, and Solomon just says, you know, I'm a king. Just have a nice meal with your family. Just enjoy everyday life. Just live life simply and find enjoyment in the simple pleasures of the earth. He says, verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, even though no one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw that all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, for though a man labors to discover it, again, he's back to this idea of laboring, trying so hard to understand why this happens that way and what God is doing. And he says, for though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. So again, Solomon's just expressing that utter frustration of realizing we can't fully understand all, that we're never going to fully grasp everything. Sometimes what's happening, sometimes what God permits, and look, folks, even sometimes what God himself is doing, it all comes back to this very reality that Isaiah 55 says what? That his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that sometimes when God is working, we are simply not able to comprehend what he's doing and how it all connects and the reasons. And so the wisest people kind of retreat back into the reality of understanding, listen, here's what I do know, that there is a king who is never dethroned, who ultimately not only rules over all, but he can overrule any human earthly power at any time he wants to on my behalf or for your benefit, right? The Bible tells us that the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord, and he can turn it whatever way he wishes. Now, we may not be able to do that, but God can. And so ultimately, what does it become? It becomes a choice to recognize I am called to live a life of faith. We don't live by explanations. We live by promises, and we live by faith, and we realize, I don't always understand what God is doing, but I can humbly accept that God understands all that's going on, and it's not out of his control, and that somehow he is going to, Ephesians 1 says, work all things together according to the counsel of his will. And we can torment ourselves trying to find the reasons and the understandings, and I know that's hard because when we go through things, we want answers, Right? But sometimes I'm afraid we torture ourselves thinking that we are owed an explanation for everything. And we're really not. We're really not. The wisest thing we can do is humbly realize we have a good father, and that good father is on a throne. He's working on our behalf. The Bible says if God be for us, what? Who can be against us? Or you could better say, who cares? Right? Who cares? Let's stand. We'll conclude there.